Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. So Akiva Rosh Hashanah is coming, and I thought it would be worthwhile for us to have a conversation about some themes that surround Rosh Hashanah. And in particular, I was thinking about the the three themes that occur throughout Tefillah, which are Malchiot, which is kingship, Zichronot, memory, and Shofrot, the sound of the shofar. And it occurred to me that historically we're in an interesting moment. Um, Just to look at the date, today is September 10th, 2022, and Queen Elizabeth passed away this past week, and her son, Charles, will become king. And even if you are not enamored with the royal family, It is an opportunity to watch the pomp and circumstance that goes into someone being, uh, I don't know if I even know the right term, but inaugurated as king of a country. And I was learning Gemar Brachos this morning, and it talked about how if you, even if you have to pay, you should pay to see the face of a non-Jewish king, because seeing a non-Jewish king gives you something to compare meeting the king of kings to, right, meaning Hashem. And so I thought it was an opportunity for us to discuss the idea that as there is this build-up to Charles's inauguration to his being crowned as king it is an opportunity for us to reflect on the idea of Hashem as king and if all of this pomp and circumstance goes into Charles becoming king how much more so should we be preparing and creating an atmosphere around celebrating Hashem as king for Rosh Hashanah I guess my question connected to that for you is when we grew up in a place, meaning the United States, that has no king, right? We have presidents and they rotate every four to eight years. How do we get ourselves in a mental state where we can think about someone or some being or some entity being the ultimate ruler and having control over our lives.
So Avi, I guess the thing that I would most be able to say as a comparison is probably many of us grew up in a house with a a parent or other adult figure who was the the king or queen. And in many ways, I think you saw that, oh, this is the king. And, and it starts off with that very childlike, this is the ruler of the house. Uh, probably no different than, again, I can only imagine because I've never had a king, uh, but how we might imagine if we did live in, say, England, which has a monarchy, the how how kids feel about when they learn that they have a ruler. And then as you get older, you see, oh, well, there's also other parts to the governing body, so to speak, in England. Just like as we grow older, we learn that there's other governing bodies in our house. I guess the real difference would be is perhaps if we weren't, instead of comparing it to England, if you were in a nation where there was just a monarchy, it was just the king. I don't know if it would feel the same then, because I imagine it would be something more along the lines of what happens when we realize HaKadosh Baruch Hu is our king. Right? The, he, that's the absolute king. No question. There's no... There's no sidestepping it. And that's the big difference, of course, between what we know is with a monarchy and the ultimate HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Ribbono Shalom. I imagine that those two are probably not a satisfactory example for someone, again, who lives in a either a dictatorship or a monarchy where it's truly just the king or queen is in power. I, I guess I couldn't really speak to that one other than the understanding that perhaps maybe there's a closer understanding for them when they realize about Rabbana Shalom. And I, I want to jump back to what you said at the beginning, the idea of the parent as monarch in the house because that made me connect the idea of Avinu Malkenu, right, our father, who is our king, um, which is one of the other components that we, we connect with on Rosh Hashanah, um, and that the parent as monarch, the parent as also the caregiver, the parent as, as both being the absolute power, but also being responsible. Kiva, our second theme is zichronot, memory. And we ask Hashem to remember all of the good things that we've done, and not just the good things that we have done, but the good things that our ancestors have done. Um, we call it zuchut avot, right? Things that were done the, by our ancestors, and, and in their merit, we should. Um, be forgiven, we should be uh, rewarded. And I want to ask, isn't memory also a double-edged sword in the sense that 
yeah, if you're remembering the good, sometimes you can't help but remember the negative. <clears throat> Is there a bias towards remembering the good? Right. A lot of times we think back about our past and we tend to remember the good times or is that just some of us? So in general, from a non-pathological standpoint, there is actually a bias to remembering the good. You're correct. Um, and they've actually done studies on this. They've done studies on this in the, in the elderly and they've seen that overall there is a positive bias. Remember, mem remembering the good things much more than the bad. Um, and, I mean, I, w I would guess that in part with this idea of, you know, remembering the good, remembering the bad, we're, we're asking Hashem to remember, right? And, and with that, we, Hashem already knows. So this is really for us anyway, and I think in line with what Slichot is all about, in part, it's related to tshuva. So, if we remember the good things that we did, we feel good about it, we want to repeat that again, and we remember the things that our ancestors did, the good stuff, we want to repeat that. The truth is, if we remember the stuff that was not so good, we have an opportunity to correct it. That's the whole point. And so, I don't think we need to necessarily, again, in a healthy state of mind, fear the the risk of remembering something that we could do better because that's just it it's something we can do better now avi i'd like to toss this back as a question to you we have we ask for the memory of of the things that we did and our ancestors did and there's also the idea that one person is an entire world because what can come from them is an entire world so why don't we ask to be remembered for the things that will happen. Because theoretically, if we perhaps haven't fully achieved our potential, it doesn't mean that we don't have the opportunity to continue to create and have wonderful things come from us. That wouldn't happen if, obviously, we're not given another chance. So I think the answer is that we do say that to a certain extent, right? One of the things and one of the components that we talk about is even though I have not been a perfect person, right? Even though I have sinned and missed the mark, the idea is that I will be better. I will improve. And when that is the case, you are saying to God as the judge, right? Don't just judge me on my past sins but judge me on my future potential as well, because I'm promising that the future will be better. So I think we do that to a certain extent, but without um, leveraging it in its fullest state. In other words, we don't say, because I promise I will be perfect in the future, because I think it's impossible for us to be perfect. As human beings, we are naturally prone to mistakes, and so making promises about things that cannot happen, that we know will not happen, is being untruthful. Rather, it is a promise to attempt to improve rather than a promise to make ourselves perfect. Mm -hmm.
the third theme in Rosh Hashanah Musaf is the idea of shofrot, the shofar, the ram's horn that we blow, and that makes three different sounds. And there are two different remembrances that are connected to this. One is the uh, event of the binding of Isaac, Akedat Yitzchak, and how when finally Avram was told not to slaughter Yitzchak, but rather to replace it with a ram, and so the ram's horn reminds, is supposed to remind God of the sacrifice that Avraham was willing to make on his behalf. Um, and the other is the sounds that the shofar makes, which are supposed to be a crying or weeping sort of sound. And there is one long weeping and three medium weepings and nine short weepings, and some have compared that to the cry of uh, uh, an older person and the cry of a a younger adult, and then the cry of a baby. And I was hoping, Akiva, that you might speak to us a little about the catharsis involved in crying and sort of the emotions that might be connected to crying out for help versus crying over something that has happened versus other types of crying that might exist. So we cry for many different reasons. Um, There's the physical pain, and then there's the emotional pain. Physical pain is pretty straightforward. I don't think it makes sense to necessarily touch on that, other than the fact that I am going to point out everybody's threshold for physical pain is different. And we do know that there is a clear, yet somewhat confusing, association between mental state and perception of physical pain. I'm not going to go into that in significant detail, but there is an association. So just because the pain is in your head doesn't mean the pain isn't real. The emotional pain, of course, associates with that very well. And emotional pain can be heartache, both physical and how we describe that kind of pain. It can be sadness, loneliness, it can be crying as, as catharsis. Sometimes we don't have words for what we're experiencing. As you, as you can see, uh, Avi, I, I'm struggling to find all of the words that one can associate with the reason for, for tears. And I think that part of that is very clear because catharsis says it beautifully. Catharsis is, well, the idea would be that it would be a resolution of that, but nevertheless, catharsis is sometimes the, I think of it as the idea of, I can't figure out how to sum this up, but crying seems to fit. And oftentimes there's a relief after that. Now, that's, of course, in the ideal, not necessarily in the real. Um, 
then we can have tears of joy, right? So one of the things with Akedat Yitzchak is Avraham was told to sacrifice his son. He didn't end up having to do that. One could argue that that might be, in part, a cause for tears of joy on both ends. And that also is something that's very unique. Again, sometimes we don't have the words to explain what it is that we're feeling. But you know, most of what we say isn't said in words anyway. And so crying is just another good example of how that can sometimes say what we need to say, even if we don't have the words to describe it. So Akiva, part of the, this is a bonus question, I guess, since we've talked about our three, but I want to um, talk about forgiveness. And forgiveness is a really hard thing to do sometimes. I mean, you know, somebody bumps into you, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, no big deal. But sometimes people really injure us in our lives, and some, sometimes, not surprisingly, the emotional uh, damage is far more serious than the physical damage. And sometimes we even damage ourselves. And so I'm hoping you can speak a little bit to how we find forgiveness for others, and maybe even more importantly, how we find forgiveness for ourselves. <clears throat> when we are young, I think that we're taught that we apologize to someone because we did something wrong and apologizing to them makes them feel better. And then we learn that we forgive someone because forgiving someone is the right thing to do and it makes the person who apologized to us feel better. It's dreck. We apologize because it helps us feel better. And the reason why that part is important is because when somebody says, and this happens all the time, right, with, with kids, oh, he didn't mean the apology. Oh, she was just pretending. She said that she's sorry because you said she had to. Well, an apology, if you think about it and realize that an apology is said for the person who is apologizing, then it doesn't matter if they meant it or not because that's on them. Similarly, forgiveness is not really for the person who's apologizing. <coughs> yes, of course. If, I, if you harm me and you apologize sincerely and I forgive you sincerely, then both of us feel better. Fine, that's easy. That one's straightforward. That one's not what we're talking about. Forgiveness, if I forgive you, regardless of whether you meant it or not, then I can let go of some of that pain and some of that hurt and some of that anger. And really, all of those feelings were doing nothing but hurt me. And so to forgive gives the opportunity for yourself to feel better. I think that if we can remember that when it comes time to both apologize to those who we have wronged but also forgive those who ask for us forgiveness, 
I think it can remind us that not only do we perhaps have the opportunity to make somebody else feel better, which is always a wonderful opportunity, but also we have an opportunity to make ourselves feel better, and sometimes we need that. So that's what I would say, is sometimes it is difficult to forgive, but if you can, you'll be gaining so much more. To forgive someone else doesn't let them off the hook. Let's you off the hook. Avi, so I have a question for you about, in general, the the yamim noraim. Um, you know, I I think that everywhere, you don't even have to know any Jewish people, and you know that your calendar says. Unfortunately, just one day, but that there's one day of Rosh Hashanah. We, we, there's two days. I just want to be clear on that for anybody listening. There's two days of Rosh Hashanah. But suffice it to say, people know about Rosh Hashanah. People know about Yom Kippur. They, they don't necessarily know all it means. I think some people think it means you put on your nicest clothing and your smelliest perfume and you go and sit in shul and be bored for several hours. Um, I think that's a shame because I think it takes away a lot of what can be beautiful about the Yamim Narim. So I'd like to ask you for some, some rabbinical support in helping us to all go into the Chag and into the season to really enjoy what it should be and what many of us thankfully have learned that it should be help us for those who still struggle who still feel like this is something that's just too much please help with some guidance on this so I think there are a couple different ways that people can find themselves enjoying the Jewish high holidays Um, I think and I'm going to generalize but within Ashkenazic culture right Um, meaning people from Eastern Europe, there is this concept that they are days of fear and awe and that we are coming before the King of Kings who may decide our fate and we are taught from a very young age about the book of life and death that God scribes us into that day. There is another tradition, the Sephardic tradition, and it says something along the lines of I know this judge this is the same judge I was before last year and he let me off the hook All right, let's go to that judge and so they see it not as a time of fear and awe although there is that measure but also as a time of celebration there is a concept that Yom Kippur, also known as Yom HaKippurim, is a day like Purim. How is Yom Kippur like Purim? They seem to be completely different. Yom Kippur is a day when we fast and we are somber. And Purim is a day when we eat and we're happy. But the theme is the same. They are both days of salvation. One was a national day of salvation, Purim, and Yom Kippur can be a, a day of personal salvation. And so this idea of 
we are going to connect ourselves to the deeper ideas is beautiful, but it takes some work. At least one synagogue I know puts out a number of the tunes that their um, their chazanim, their their leaders, are going to use in advance, so people can familiarize themselves with them, so you can sing along. If that's what you're into, others they focus in on the rabbi's sermon and the. Believe me, I can speak from personal experience, from my own father's experience. Writing those high holiday sermons doesn't just take hours. It, it actually takes months. Um, my father would begin well before the summer. He would find specific themes and books that he would want to write on and do research so that his high holiday sermons were of their highest quality. And... For some people, it's simply a matter of diving into the machzor, the the text that we use as we pray, and saying, I really want to understand what this is saying. And so maybe I don't focus in on the Hebrew this year, but I look at the English and I find something that's meaningful for me. Um, And finally, there's the piece that I think for many of us is critical, and that is family when we look at being with our family and we recognize both the joyous component of eating with them, of celebrating with them, of being together with them, along with the hopes we have for the coming year, that can be inspirational as well. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.